we're not going to be bound by any uh, timelines. We need to do the best job we can for the American people. We want quality legislation, and we're going to do that. Welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm Hannah Jaffe-Walt. And I'm David Kestenbaum. Today is Wednesday, November 4th. That was Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid, you heard at the top, talking about passing health care legislation. Our indicator today actually is also about health care. It comes in a letter from 40 years ago. I have it here. It's all yellow and crusty. It's, <laughs> it's a message that President Johnson wrote to Congress in 1968, and the number is $100 billion, and he was using it as a warning. In that message, Johnson wrote, quote, unless the cost spiral is stopped, the nation's health bill could reach a staggering $100 billion by 1975. When LBJ wrote that letter, that number shocked people. A lot of people were like, come on, you're being a little dramatic. No, 1975 came around. Healthcare spending was $133 billion. Today, healthcare spending in the United States, over $2 trillion. So today we have a question on the show, a question that LBJ struggled with in his time, that Barack Obama struggles with today. And it's one that seems pretty simple, but it has confounded policymakers and insurance companies and patients for decades. The question is, how do you pay a doctor? And it is a question that we have failed to answer over and over and over again. And that failure actually explains a lot about why our healthcare system costs so much. Now, it turns out it is really hard to figure out how to pay a doctor, especially for a government to figure out how to pay a doctor. Right now, we are saddled with a system that it seems everyone, Republicans, Democrats, insurers, healthcare expert people, all think is not working very well. And that is the fee-for-service system. So fee-for-service means doctors get a fee for every test, every exam, every doctor's visit, which means the more they do, the more they make. And most players in the system do not like this, especially the government, because it ends up being very expensive. So who came up with the system? The government. <laughs> yes, the very entity that is being crushed by the enormous cost of paying doctors fee-for-service created the fee-for-service system. Well, not really created, but fee-for-service has been around forever. But the government created a particularly bad version of it, and it's one that is still causing us trouble today. So, Hannah, we are going to try to understand how we got stuck here with some time travel. Caitlin, can you take us back to 1965? I can get no very nice. All right, so it's 1965, and at this point, several U.S. presidents have tried for universal health care, have tried to create some kind of government-run health insurance, and every last one has failed. So Lyndon Johnson is in office, and he is determined he is going to be the one. He is going to create Medicare for old people, Medicaid for poor people. He is going to get it done. But the doctors are not having it. The American Medical Association, representing doctors, the AMA, they're afraid of socialized medicine, government intervention into their business. So for those of you living in the future, that will sound familiar. Anyway, he, he is determined not to fail like many presidents before him. So Lyndon Johnson makes a concession. It's a pretty big one. And here it is. Lyndon Johnson basically says, OK, doctors, tell us what you charge for the things that you do and we will pay it. We talked to Joseph Califano. He was LBJ's top assistant of domestic affairs in 1965. And he says 
it, it was the worst kind of fee for service. Instead of telling doctors how much we'll pay or negotiating a price, we just said, doctors, tell us. And Califano says the government did this because they really needed doctors to participate. If doctors didn't accept Medicare, if they wouldn't see patients covered by Medicare, it would fail. In order to get the doctors aboard, we had to agree to let them charge their usual customary and prevailing fee. That gave them the power to set their own fees. And we put in cement the fee-for-service system with the doctor in control. Did you see how bad that was going to be? No. No. You know, the, the, we, we knew we knew what things we were agreeing to would be cost. So we knew it would cost. You know, we knew by giving the doctors the power to set their own fees, it would cost a little more. But we worried about whether doctors would come into the Medicare program. The big issue was: you're going to control medicine. You're going to have socialized medicine. You're going to, you know, control the doctors. We, we were on edge. We were on edge about about whether doctors would agree to, you know would uh, agree to take Medicare patients. And Why were you worried they wouldn't participate? You were going to pay them whatever they, they wanted. so opposed to it. I mean, they reluctantly... It wasn't... Believe me, within two years, they loved it. But they didn't really understand what a bonanza this was going to be for them. Almost overnight, they were being paid for care that they had previously just given to patients. And I think that had an enormous impact on their incomes. So before this moment, doctors, many of whom had been seeing poor and elderly patients already for free or for a big discount, were now being paid. And not just being paid, but being paid their usual and customary fees, basically what they asked for. Um, and I tracked down a couple doctors who were practicing when this happened. And, and actually, more than one of them used that word bonanza in describing the change. Here's one, Dr. Lucian Leap. He was a practicing surgeon at the time. We found out what the uh, general uh, price uh, fee for a service was and uh, charged that or maybe added 10% because, of course, I'm better than average. And so uh, it, was, it was an incentive for doctors to, uh, to charge what they thought was reasonable for them and, uh, and then, of course, to increase it every year uh, by, say, 5 or 10%. Now, Hannah, having been a reporter all these years, you know, it is really hard to get people in politics to say, man, we screwed something up. But Joe Califano, who worked with LBJ, he said, yeah, we made some big mistakes. We just did not understand all the consequences. We didn't understand, I think it's fair to say, the, the, the full economic structure of the system because we did some other things. We passed legislation to double the number of doctors from 8,000 to 16,000 that were graduating from medical schools. Wait, you passed legislation saying we're just going to have twice as many doctors now? Yeah, we, we passed legislation to provide funds to medical schools to, to double the number of doctors from 8,000 to 16,000 a year graduating, and we built a lot of hospitals. We thought doubling the number of doctors and building more hospitals in the traditional economic sense of greater supply, there'll be more competition, and prices will go down. What happened? what happened was we had much greater supply. There was no competition. Prices kept going up. Califano told us that he and his team and President Johnson, they all realized they created something of a monster. And, and pretty much right away, I mean, two years after Medicare passed, LBJ is pleading with Congress to let him change the way Medicare pays physicians. By late 67, 
The budget, the da- the budget data was just stunning. I mean, in 1968, we knew that system should be changed. We asked Congress for authority to change it. But you just created it. I know it. But we but we we saw what was happening with costs so fast, so fast. We created it. We created it in 1965. In early 68, in a message called Health in America, we went to Congress and asked for authority to change that system. And by this time, the doctors and hospitals who had so resisted the system, you know, uh, were now sitting at this groaning table full of food, and they loved it, and they were gluttons, and they uh, were eating it up, and they went to Congress and said, no, 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 we love this. We want it just the way it is. And David, that, that was it. There was no turning back after this. And and pretty much as soon as Medicare said, this is how we're going to pay doctors, lots of private insurers adopted the very same system. So remember, Medicare is huge. So what Medicare does can kind of set the rules. This, this decision changed everything. There was no turning back. Now we're in 1975, and as we said, this problem has not gone away. In fact, it has gotten worse. Healthcare spending has soared to a 13% annual rate increase. And fee-for-service, to be fair, is not the only reason medicine is getting better and it's getting more expensive, but it's definitely part of the problem. And President Ford says we have to do something about this. We can't just pay doctors whatever they ask for. He realized he was not going to be able to get everyone to agree to throw out this new customary fee-for-service model. So he said, fine, we'll pay you what you want within limits. He set caps on doctor pay. Which sounds reasonable, except in this one decision, the government actually set into motion another problem in healthcare today that's a big problem right now, over-treatment. So if you tell doctors the payment for a particular procedure is going to be capped, one way for doctors to make sure that they get what they think they should be paid is to do more. Doctors, for the most part, of course, were doctors because they wanted to help people. But this, you know, for any human being, it's a clear incentive to do more. It's at least a nudge to err on the safe side, to order tests, to do that exploratory surgery. Okay. So quick recap. 1965, the government puts fee-for-service into law, allows doctors to charge the government what they choose. 1975, we say, okay, we can do this, but within limits, guys, and time marches on, and medicine gets really, really good. Ah, the 1980s. We've got MRIs, we've got CT scans, we've got organ transplants. And we are getting into suing each other. So now our (laughs) doctors have really expensive tools, and they're worried about being sued. And we are all old. We're all living longer. We retired to Florida. It is awesome, and it is expensive. So by the 1980s, healthcare costs are still growing like crazy. And once again, we are wrestling with this question, how do we pay doctors? And the thing is that this actually should not be a very hard question. Competitive markets are generally really good at figuring out how much people should be paid. So, for instance, David, say you want to hire a hoagie maker for Kestenbaum's Hoagie Hotspot. You do, right? Yeah, yeah. You're in search of a hoagie maker? I am. So you you put a sign out front of your place and you say you're hiring a hoagie maker and you say, okay, I'm going to pay you $6 an hour. Actually, the sign says, uh, wanted sandwich artist. (laughs) Right. Okay. So you're paying $6 an hour and no one walks in to apply. So what do you do? You go out, you change the sign, you say, okay, I'm going to pay you $6.50 an hour. And then a couple people come in and apply. Still, nobody's 
got the right hoagie experience. So you go out, you change the sign again, you say, sandwich artist, $7 an hour. And then you get lots and lots of qualified, great sandwich artisans applying. And you know that is the right price. So for doctors, doctors, however, are different, as we talked about a lot of times on this podcast. They operate in an unusual market. First of all, most of them are independent contractors. Doctors generally like to work for themselves. And we, we are their customers, but we don't pay them directly. We don't, we don't say, whoa, Dr. Kestenbaum, 50 bucks for a physical? Really? No way. We don't say that because we have insurance. So how, in the system we have, how do you figure out how much to pay doctors? The government could not figure it out. Private insurers had a hard time figuring it out. Sounds like a question for an economist. So the question is, can we find a rational method that could uh, be used to set physicians' fees? You know he's an economist when you hear the word rational. So this guy is Professor William Shao. He's an economist at Harvard. And in the 1980s, Professor Shao decided to do this kind of crazy thing. He said, okay, so the healthcare market has all these distortions. It doesn't set fees correctly for doctors. So I will make up a market. I will find the right prices, and I will calculate exactly how much a properly competitive market would pay you. So this is kind of an odd idea. It's like saying you could make a spreadsheet and somehow figure out that the hoagie sandwich artist should get $7 an hour. But that is what he decided to do. So he developed what is called a relative value scale, basically sat in this building at Harvard with charts, and he began to answer a lot of what really seemed like philosophical questions like, what is a physician's work? How do you measure the mental work involved in doing a colonoscopy? How do you compare a pediatrician doing a baby visit with a brain surgery doing brain surgery? Right. And Chow brought all these doctors into these panels to figure it out. So he would bring them in, and they'd be advisors. And he would have them each rate every single thing that they did in relation to one reference point. So, like, for example, a general surgeon would have a reference of a hernia repair. And so they'd talk about how hard that was compared to every single other thing they did, how technically hard it is, how stressful it is, how much it costs, actual supplies. And they would assign a certain number of units to each procedure. They did this for thousands and thousands of procedures. And Congress loved this idea, the idea that someone, an economist from Harvard, no less, might be able to offer some rational way of answering that annoying question, how do you pay a doctor? How much do we pay the doctors? And so midway into Shao's research, Congress said, if you can really do this, basically do what a market normally would do in your little lab in Harvard, we will adopt your scale and we will completely change the way we pay doctors. Which got doctors interested. Very interested. So interested that while Shao was conducting his research, inviting groups of doctors into these meetings to act as his advisors, those doctors started bringing in their own advisors. Most of the major specialties hire their own consultants to watch over our work uh, like a hogs, and uh, they also trying to second-guess us constantly. Many specialty societies have their consultants come with them. Of course, we will not let their consultants come into the same meeting. So whenever there's a coffee break, all the consultants will be waiting outside. Really? And the, the, these physicians who are serving as our advisors will dash over to their consultants, trying to see how they can game what 
we do. So, David, they'd be in these little rooms, and then during the breaks, all the docs would dash out to talk to their consultants, which was annoying to Xiao. But he, he felt like the process was strong enough to avoid too much bias from those guys waiting outside. But then all these specialty groups, the orthopedists and the radiologists, they all started coming out with their own relative value studies. American College of Orthopedic Surgeons uh, took our methods and uh, commissioned a study uh, to outside consultants, produce the results before we were finished. <laughs> so they did their own study ahead of your yes, study. several of them did that. So did radiology. So then they were trying to trump us. <clears throat> and so orthopedic surgeons present their results. They say the shelf study is not valid. And then we had to explain why we think our results are valid and more accurate compared to theirs. So it took tremendous amount of work, took years out of my life, and my hair, hair turned gray. <laughs> During that time. Mm-hmm. Step by step, ooh, baby. Oh, Joey. Okay, we've made it to 1992, and Xiao has published his research, and Medicare adopted the relative value scale. So doctors were no longer paid what they asked for, but rather they were told what they would be paid. And one interesting consequence of that was, according to the big spreadsheet, primary care physicians turned out to be pretty valuable. Um, So they would make more than they did before, and a lot of specialists would make less. And overall, big headline of the day, healthcare costs would stop growing so fast. And yet, and yet, healthcare costs today, they are still skyrocketing. It's almost like time just stood still. So Xiao says this is not because his model is flawed. He says the relative values were right when he created them, but every year they get updated, and that process, he says, has been taken over by special interests. He says he put out his work, and Congress basically handed it over to the guys who were sitting outside his meeting rooms waiting for the coffee breaks. So, David, I actually talked to some of those specialty groups that Shao feels like got handed his research, the radiology and surgical specialty groups, um, including this guy who actually sits on the panel that updates the relative value scale. And he says, healthcare is expensive. It just is. And and who other than doctors are you going to ask how hard it is to do a colonoscopy and how that compares to a physical, to a brain surgery? You need doctors. You need these specialty groups to be involved. There is a lot of talk today about paying doctors in a different way. Instead of fee-for-service, just paying them salaries. The Mayo Clinic, the Cleveland Clinic, a handful of well-regarded healthcare organizations pay salaries. But despite special appearances by President Obama and the constant mention of these places in the healthcare debate, no one is actually really pushing this into law. And so the question that we started with, how do we pay doctors? We still haven't really figured out how to answer that question. All right. You can find this and other puzzles on our blog, npr.org money. We have a cool challenge up there to translate an abstract from an economic paper. If you can do it, I will personally be very, very impressed. <laughs> Me too. Um, and, or you can send your translation to us uh, by email. We're at planetmoney at npr.org. I'm David Kestenbaum. And I'm Hannah Jaffe-Walt. Thanks for listening. 